you're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's nice every once in a while that I don't have to go searching for an intro song. One just seems to fit. Another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name again is Sean Engel, and I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with a cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And this time out on the show, we're going to be covering once again two books. We're still going to be looking into the 80-page Giants, which is been pretty fun. I hope you guys enjoyed the last episode. I really did, where pretty much everyone on the internet was gracious enough to give their time and talk about these little stories in the Green Lantern 80-page giant. But this time in 80-page giant number three, it's a continuous story. It's not inventory stories. It's not little original stories. It's one long-form story. And actually, it's a pretty good one. Scott Beatty writes it, and a lot of different artists come to do it, including Joyce Chin, Graham Nolan. It's a fun story that I hope you'll enjoy reading, or at least enjoy listening to me talk about it. Plus, we've got an issue of Green Lantern, number 127, where a character who is ridiculously like Firestorm meets up with a villain of Firestorm. Effigy, the match-headed Green Lantern wannabe enemy, is matched up with Killer Frost, and the two are pretty much a couple made in heaven, or some other place, I guess. But there's a team-up between them, and of course, Kyle has to come in and interrupt the proceedings. Green Lantern interrupt us, I guess. But yeah, we'll be getting to that, as well as Green Lantern and Page Giant, as soon as I play these promos for some podcasts that I hope you guys will listen to. So, after the promos, we'll be coming back to Green Lantern number 127. I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, would remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo Akachin figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. 
Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries to turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. But before we get into the issue today, let's go ahead and open up the Just One of the Guys mailbag and read some of your letters. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and again, if you'd like to write into the show, the email address for the show is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm glad to hear from longtime letter writer and good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott, write, Scott writes in with the title of Jenny Likes the Teleporter. Hmm, I wonder what this is going to be about. He says, hi, Sean. On my quest to catch up on some issues, I'd like to send along my thoughts if you don't mind. Of course I don't mind. I love getting emails from you, Scott. He says, On Green Lantern number 105, part 5 of the Emerald Knight story arc was great. Solid issue. It was nice to see Guy back as Warrior on page 9 to fight Parallax to try and save his bar. During Kyle's battle with Parallax on the moon, he constructs a... He makes a... I'm sorry, he creates a construct of Kilowog, which was a nice throwback. R.I.P. Kilowog. Yeah, I think that was another way of Kyle trying to play mind games with Hal and you know, messing with him. So a good thought on Kyle to sort of bring back the uh, ghost of Hal's past to try and distract him because, yeah, technically Kyle, although he is wielding the Green Lantern Ring, is not up power standards-wise to uh, Parallax. Going back to the letter, it says, Ron Mars continued his great writing in this issue, and it sets up the next issue for a nicely huge battle between young Hal and old Hal on the moon. Green Lantern number 106, the conclusion to Emerald Knights, was a great issue. Overall, the six-issue series was fantastic. 
The scene where the three of them travel back to Coast City in the moment it was destroyed was creepy, and the panel where Parallax explains that the skin is going to melt off the little boy gave me the shivers. Yeah, that was good writing by Ron Mars, and expressing the kind of ideas and horrors that these people went through. Uh, young Hal has... I guess we kind of decided this is probably Hal, you know, just a couple of years into his tenure as being Green Lantern. So he's fought villains, he's fought space aliens and stuff like that. You know, he's even had encounters with Sinestro by this time. But he's never really dealt with a horror on the likes of what Coast City is. And by having Parallax to describe that to him is got to be really jarring and knowing that his hometown is going to have to endure this would have been one of these things that could have turned him and made him go along with Parallax but again it's a testament to the hero that Hal Jordan is that at this time at this optimistic point in his his essentially his youth he wasn't swayed by this argument so it just goes to show what a great hero it was and again it makes no sense why people think that Ron Mars had a thing against Hal Jordan, which it never seems to be that way, but that's heat for you. Continuing on with the letter, he says, the ending was great, where they all travel back to their respective timelines. I wonder, though, if the final panel of Kyle handing out the ring was meant for the reader to think that Kyle was handing out to them, or maybe he was giving it to Jenny. I wasn't sure about that. Uh, I'm pretty certain... I'm pretty certain it was meant to be for Jenny, but I never really thought about it. It could be one of these things where, you know, he's saying that he's giving the Green Lantern ring that Hal offered to them to to the readers as sort of a gesture of, here, you know, it's Hal's ring, take it, do with it what you want. That's, that's an interesting concept. I've never really thought about that. Green Lantern 107, he says, I might have answered my own question because the cover of this issue shows Kyle handing the ring out to the reader, but in the issue, it turns that he's handing it to Jade. Still kind of weird. I still find it hard to reconcile how Kyle is in the picture on page 9 with Guy, John, Alan, and Hal. Would Kyle just draw a fictitious painting with all five of them standing there smiling? Yeah, I think it's uh, artistic license. We'll, We'll chalk it up to that. I'm not an expert on girls, but did Jenny use her female mind tricks on page 11 to basically trick Kyle into giving her the ring? Uh, If you can call boobies uh, female mind tricks, then yes, I'm certain that was probably it. Jenny looks amazing on pages 13 and 14 when she's trying on the different outfits. Except for that 90s one. That That was 90s. The Warriors Bar is closed again, Scott says. When does the city have an obligation to shut it down due to it being dangerous to the public? Yeah, you know, you think that every once in a while a supervillain attack, you know, causes a building that people actually go to uh, congregate at. That happens regularly. You would think the city would have an impetus to not have that in their city, but maybe Buck Morgo just has some good pull with the mayor and you know, it's Giuliani. You know, take from that what you will. Anyway, he continues on. It was nice to see Sledge back again. Great issue. And then Green Lantern 108. This was a nice issue with Jenny and Wonder Woman as the main characters, and it was a pretty good issue written by guest writer Eric Luke. Your description of Jenny looking up like looking like a blow-up doll on page four was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I'm glad you found it hilarious. I found the artwork atrocious. It's bad. I agree she definitely looks good in green, though. Ugh. Alan Scott describes his brutal honeymoon on page 8 when his wife turned evil. 
Hopefully it was after they consummated the marriage. Well, I don't know, you know, maybe it could be interesting if she turned evil during the, uh, during the act, but, you know, uh, maybe Alan swings that way. <clears throat> Moving quickly on, Wonder Woman is strangely jealous of Jade on page 9 when they meet for the first time. I'm not too sure why, but I'm guessing a lot of ladies wanted to get a piece of Kyle around that time. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Wonder Woman had, you know, physical affectations for Kyle. I know she seemed, you know, when Bo Smith was writing, uh, writing Guy Gardner Warrior, there was supposed to be a through line that Guy and Wonder Woman would have had, if not a, a, a emotional or a romantic relationship, at least a kinship of some sort, where they could see in each other the sort of warrior spirit and that kind of made them close but I don't know if Wonder Woman specifically would have had a thing for Kyle but I'm certain you could probably read that into it He's uh, going back to Scott's letter he says I'm not too sure why but I'm guessing a lot of ladies just wanted to get a piece of Kyle around the time I think I read that I agree the art is off in this issue the orgasm talk on page 14 is hilarious when they use the JLA teleport to go to the watchtower yeah I found that kind of creepy myself I like Jenny. She likes to flirt with guys at the beginning of the issue. She likes to get orgasms in the teleporter, which keeps bucking woman, which she keeps bucking Wonder Woman to go back into again. Eh, well, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you could have an orgasmatron and, you know, it'd also allow you to teleport all around the planet, you know, that's win-win for, for both things, so... It was funny at the end when Wonder Woman threatened to never let Jenny use the teleporter again, and Jenny just sighs and wishes for Kyle to hurry back from space, if you know what she means. I think I do. Thanks, Sean. Talk to you again soon, Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, for writing in. I really appreciate getting your letters, and I appreciate your insight and issues. I'm glad you're enjoying these. I have been as well. Even looking back on it, the Eric Luke issue which was, I think, one of the only ones not written by Ron Morris in this entire run, was decent enough, even though it was a bit awkward. But thanks again for writing in, Scott. I encourage everyone who listened to the show to write in if you'd like to. The email address, once again, is justwhentheguyspodcast at gmail.com. But that's going to be it for the email bag. We'll go ahead and close that up and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 127. Green Lantern number 127 was cover dated August 2000 and released on June 7, 2000. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that. The cover price was 225 US and 350 Canada, so we got another bump up in price of uh, 26 cents in the US and 25 cents in Canada, I believe. Eh. Money, I guess. The title was Burning Desire. The writer was Jay Ferber again. Penciler this time out was Ron Lim, inker was Jordy Ensign, colorist was Rob Schwager, letter was Sean Conant, assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Bob Shrek. In an isolated patch of forest in the Anirondack Mountains, a small yet growing larger forest fire threatens the lives of a mother and son trapped in the middle of it. But luckily, a floating metahuman passes by, picks up the family, and flies them off. Unluckily, the metahuman is Effigy. And upon hearing of the child's disapproval of his desire to create some more fires, he drops the mother and son earthward, where they fall into late convenience. Nearby, a DEO paddy wagon is transporting the villain Keller Frost to a supermax prison, when darn the luck, the truck swerves off the road, crashing into the ravine below. 
The two agents get out and attempt to subdue the frozen Firestorm felon, but she absorbs the heat from one of them, increasing her powers. At the same time, Effigy shows up and sets fire to the other guard, allowing Frost to absorb more of the energy. The two head to Niagara Falls, where they both recount their tragic origin stories, and suddenly realize that their power sets are a perfect match for each other. After a little fire and ice tonsil hockey, the duo are all set up to do some supervillainy, when who should show up and be a super cock blocker but Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. Kyle mentioned that he saw the forest fire, the overturned truck, and the woman and child not splattered on the ground and figured something was up. Of course, Frost and Effigy just want to be left alone to bump super uglies. So the Fighting McBeitenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out. Frost blasts GL with her amped up powers and freezes him solid into the falls itself. Impressed by her display of power, Effigy scoops up Frost and heads off for some more thermal coupling. If you know what I mean. Wink. Of course, Green Lantern cuts his way out of the waterfall and heads after the hot head and the cool cat chaining the ankle of FG mid-flight and causing him to drop Killer Frost. Frost does the whole create an ice plateau thing and stops her fall, but Kyle presses the attack. However, when he realizes that the ring construct hairdryer he was using on Frost just isn't working, he turns tail and runs. FG carries Frost to the ground, hoping to celebrate their victory with some sweet monkey loving, but Frost says that Green Lantern will be back and they need to be ready for him. The two start to bicker about who is right, but that point is made moot as Kyle drops a heaping helping of consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights observed, on the duo, in the form of a steam shovel filled with snow from the frozen falls. Peeved by the ice blast, Effigy rockets out of the snow pile only to get beamed by a ring construct Louisville slugger. Thinking he's had enough of this, Effigy blasts an oncoming car, distracting Green Lantern long enough to allow him to escape so that he may fight another day. I have to say, this is working pretty well with the ongoing story, despite this one feeling like it really wasn't going much of anywhere. It didn't have an inventory feel like issue 125 did, but it didn't seem to be advancing the characters in any way at all. Maybe Fairburn knew that his run of the book would be limited with Judd Winnick coming in on a couple of or coming on in a couple of issues. So he didn't want to, or maybe wasn't allowed to by editorial, make any major steps forward with the character. However, Ron Lim on the art is a welcome return, and he does do a much better job at drawing effigy than previous artists. I'm sadly looking at you again. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, it was a decent but somewhat aimless issue. Nothing wrong with it, nothing really stand out about it. Uh, you know, just probably one of those ones that, you know, Paul Spataro would say, you know, you read it, you enjoy it, you go put it back in the bin and don't think about it uh, ever again. Nothing major happens, so average issue overall. But despite all that, let's go ahead and go look at some of the things specifically in the book, starting with the cover, which is a very another very blue cover, like the breakdown issue of 123. And that's kind of nice because it gives a nice contrast to Kyle's green and black costume. And I will have to admit here, uh, Ron Lim drawing Killer Frost here, uh, she's got a nice tushy. That's that's something to, something to draw the uh, male reader's eyes in, so there you go. 
Moving into the book on page three, in the beginning of this encounter with Effigy and the uh, family, Effigy actually makes an effort to get the mother and her son out of the fire. So I'm wondering if there's a possible chance that there might be a slim bit of hero in there that we might discover later in the series. Of course, like I said, from this point on, I'm reading these as if they were brand new, so I don't know what goes on with Effigy. He could turn out to be a good guy. Of course, the fact that he dropped them both in late coincidence, which surprisingly just happened to be there so they didn't get splattered on the ground and make this a uh, not-comics-approved book, book, it would lead you to believe that that's probably not the case. Like I said, however, he did drop them in the lake, so there is that. Page 4, panel 3. It's nice to let readers that don't know about Killer Frost from Firestorm how her powers actually work. And by readers, of course, I mean pretty much everyone who reads comics. Because no one reads Firestorm. I'm making fun of Shag. But even though I mock Shag on this because, well, it's fun too and because he can he can take it, this is an actual really clever pairing. Each power set of each individual character complements each other. We've got Effigy, who burns off energy and creates fire constructs, or at least can, creates flame, which Killer Frost can then absorb the heat from that to power her own cold powers. It's Essentially, they're a match made in heaven, and if it weren't for them both being egotists and not trusting each other, which is, yes, of course, a very common trope in villains, they could probably just take over. This would be a really formidable pairing were the actual people not such out-and-out idiots. But the thing is, you actually kind of feel for the characters, and it's shown really well on page 9, where there's a lot of exposition in there, having the two characters tell their sort of origin stories to get people up to speed on, you know, where they came from and what they were doing prior to this. But if they, again, if they just weren't so self-interested, you you would think that they both had these sort of miserable lives and these bad things go on to them, that if they could actually turn things around and work together and work for, for a common goal or for common good, you know, they could actually do some good, but no, it's their something in their psyche or whatever that's just caused them to turn to evil. So disappointing. And then on the next couple of pages, we get them exchanging powers or basically violently tongue kissing. And then, of course, Kyle has to come in and commit, like I said, Lanternus Interruptus. So, yes, Kyle the Cockplucker, or the superheroic Cockplucker. Page 17, again, uh, not a a slight on Firestorm villains, but I guess Killer Frost wasn't an important enough villain to be in the JLA villain files like the ones from last week. You know, the people that were in the slab penitentiary that Kyle had read up on in the uh, JLA villain files. So I I guess Killer Frost is considered to be less of a threat than Typhoon. Kind of sad, I guess. But after Kyle sees that he can't take Killer Frost out by melting her with a ring construct hairdryer, he quickly uses experience and brains to take her out. Instead of, you know, pouring on the heat, he pours on the cold by dumping the uh, remains of Niagara Falls on her. Uh, 
So again, this is one of those things where Kyle has finally come full circle into his character and he knows how to handle situations that might take the inexperienced Kyle just out at the very beginning. So uh, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what, you know, what comes after this. So uh, like I said, uh, an inconsequential story, but a good one nonetheless. Let's see what kind of ads they have. See if they're inconsequential as well. The front end side cover is looks like the image of a pool of some sort, maybe one of those inflatable type pools with a sort of green rubber shark in there. And it's an advertisement for Rice Krispie treats. I guess the individual packed ones, and they've got uh, someone with a drink in the uh, stuck into the Rice Krispie treat, and it's saying that the. Uh, Rice Krispie Treat would be great as a floating drink holder. So, yeah, there you go, kids. Yeah, make sure you take your Rice Krispie Treats out to the pool and put them in the water with you. The next ad we get is for the Disney Channel original movie, Stepsister from the Planet Weird. And this stars basically no one that I know of aside from Lance Guest. And I don't think he's even promoted here. It's got the two female leads on here, I guess. It's a story about aliens being stepsisters or something. But uh, like I said, Lance Guest is cast in, or is a part of the cast. And some of you from my generation may know Lance Guest as the hero from The Last Starfighter. So there you go with that. A lot of times these Disney Channel movies were just quickly made on the cheap and got generic cast that, you know, were secondary, secondary on the Disney studio lot and not really all that memorable. It wasn't until later that Disney actually tried putting a lot of, you know, effort and money into making their Disney movies. But this probably could have been just repurposed from an episode of what would eventually call what would eventually become Good Luck Charlie or something like that, so who knows. The next page is another ad for the Game Boy Color and the Men in Black game with the uh characters from the cartoon rather than Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. There's kind of a weird, almost They Live type ad with a bunch of weird billboards, including a uh, very seductive woman saying, with the caption saying, Capture Runaway Cat with Repairman's Help, Buy Drinks to Learn Gossip, Kick Computer to Make It Work. I guess it's a game, I guess it's an advertisement for the game Wild Arms 2, which from the video screenshots look like some sort of Mech Warrior type game. I don't know. It's. It's a weird advertisement of it. it. Looks like, you know, downtown New York City with taxi cabs driving by and people sort of walking in a blurred way. Weird. And then after that, we get a kind of deceptive ad. It's a bunch of flying dragon, demon, angels shooting out of a weird sort of, you know, eye from the Lord of the Rings, you know. Thing with a ominous blue-looking guy in the background. It's an ad for The Legend of Dragoon, which I guess is a PlayStation game, probably something Square Enix or whatever, but they've got it promoted like it's an actual film advertisement, so I guess, you know, now they're thinking that video games are cinematic masterpieces, and this is the best way to promote it, so I'm certain that there are people who thought that these games from this time were far more cinematic than your average, you know, side-scrolling Mario game. 
then right after that, you get another advertisement, a two-page one for Medieval 2, which I guess is a... I don't know whether it's an RPG specifically or a fighting game. It looks more like an RPG where you played this sort of skeletal knight character that goes around talking to blue skin chicks and fighting, you know, the bugs from Starship Troopers. Okay. Never played this one. This was in the time where, you know, I never owned a PlayStation. So this was the time where I have pretty much limited, if not any knowledge of video games. So there you go. After that, we get more Winky the Crow and his uh, disturbing love of corn nuts as the one-eyed crow sits atop the face of some knocked-out nerd or whatever. I don't know who's looking for autographs. It says, Winky calls on his kung fu skills to disarm a crazed fan. So I guess there are fans of uh, one-eyed crows who like corn nuts out there. No creepier than furries. Then another video game ad for Micromaniacs, which I guess is a eight-person racing game for the PlayStation. Looks kind of like... It's not derivative of Mario Kart. It looks more along the lines of Super Off-Road, maybe. But uh, again, since I never had a PlayStation, I can't be 100% sure. Then we get a two-page, half-page ad with a uh, punk rock-looking duck blowing a uh, bubble and... The bubble popping and basically exploding the feathers off another couple of ducks that were looking at the punk rock duck that was blowing bubble yum bubble gum. Man, ads are weird. But on the same page, we get advertisements for the uh, Hey Kids Comics section of DC Comics, which uh, talks about DC's Silver Age Return, which has an image of it looks like Julius Schwartz as Superman. I don't know who is. Maybe it's Julius Schwartz as Superman, Gil Kane as Sinestro, and I don't know who would be the Batman. Maybe Denny O'Neill? It looks like it might be their images on there, but I can't tell who the Batman was because I don't specifically know who the editor of Batman would have been. If you know, write in and let me know because I always love getting schooled by the listeners. After that, oh... Hey, look, more advertisements for video games. This time it's Rampage Through Time, which I guess is the Rampage game where you play, play as the three sort of giant video game daikaiju and smash buildings, but now I guess you get to smash ancient architecture, so that's kind of neat. Plus Mortal Kombat Special Forces, which I guess is another Mortal Kombat. I guess, I guess it's a Mortal Kombat RPG. Sure, why not? Then here's something I haven't seen in a while. It's an advertisement for baseball cards. It's collect the starting lineup and get with the pros. It's starting lineup uh, baseball cards by Hasbro. So, And it's not only baseball cards, but I think it's actually little figurines. And it's got, uh, I guess, pre-Todd McFarlane type uh, baseball figures. So that's kind of neat. If I knew who any of these guys were, I'd probably be pretty impressed by this. The back inside cover is another ad for the Multipath Adventures of Superman, where now you can uh, choose from a bunch of different special effects to uh, animate your Superman, where he can be Jelly World, Blow Up, Disco Lights, or Wireframe Superman. So, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a thing. And then the back outside co- cover is for Iron Soldier 3, which, again, I had never known that there was an Iron Soldier 1 or 2. Maybe they're just 
messing with us and they just put this number on there to make it sound like oh the original games were so cool that you know we had to make a couple of sequels to satisfy the market uh, it, it looks like your generic mech warrior type game where you've got a giant robot and you go blow stuff up so yeah there you go dual player split screen mode though so that's always fun but that does it for that issue. I'm going to go ahead, like I usually do, and take a little break, probably get something to drink, and once I come back, we've got Green Lantern 80-page giant number three. Last of them. Maybe, thankfully. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. Com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com, and we'll see you there. And we're back to take a look at Green Lantern, 80-page giant, number three. This one was cover dated August 2000 and released on June 21st of 2000. The cover price was a whopping $5.95 US and $9.25 in Canada. The title was A Lantern Against the Dark, a forgotten tale of the Green Lantern Corps, written by Scott Beatty, colored by Tom McGraw, with cover art by Sergio Cariello and Jesse Delprang, or Delperdang, sorry, with colors by Richard and Tanya Horry. The assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Bob Schreck. And it has a dedication and fond memory to Gil Kane, one of the brightest lights that ever shined. Now, this book was broken up into different chapters, which had different artists. The first chapter, obviously chapter one, was entitled Apocalypse Then, and had art by Graham Nolan and Mark Pennington. 
On the distant planet of Apocalypse, the 99 percenters look skyward as a strange green energy streaks along the sky. Landing, the masses see that the green street is actually a Manhunter robot, who is here to make sure that peace and order is maintained on this planet. Unfortunately, a parademon feels differently as he slits the throat of the person that the Manhunter was talking to. This causes the Manhunter to go into attack mode, taking out the parademons and freeing the crowd from oppression. But little does the android know that these people live and die for their Lord Darkseid, as they overwhelm the Manhunter, tearing it apart and tossing its remains into a fire pit. Soon after, one of Darkseid's lackeys delivers the symbol the Manhunter was carrying with him, a strange green lantern, which the Lord of Apocalypse deems irrelevant, blasting it with his Omega Beams. Now, as I go through the story, I'm not going to have too many specific page-by-page -page notes, and back reading through here, I don't think I have very many except for the beginning of this. It is really nice, however, as a note, to see the actual dark side in the Green Lantern book, and not his lame, supposed son in Graven. Uh, Nolan, in the artwork here, does some really good Kirby homages, and it makes sense. You're talking about a world that you're talking about a story that's dealing with the fourth world characters, so to have Kirby homages here is completely and obviously very justified. And Graham Nolan actually does a really good job at drawing these Kirby figures, or this aping the Kirby art. So it's some nice homages here, and I think Graham Nolan was primarily working on either the, uh, I know he's working with Chuck Dixon on Detective, I believe, but he is just a really good artist here, and uh, the, his work really sells it as well. Um, and if I didn't mention the synopsis, this beginning in the story with the Manhunters takes uh, place 1,346.72 years prior to the then current date, if that means anything to you or me. Uh, I do have a little specific notes. On page six, there's this beautiful Kirby homage that has uh, essentially uh, a very Kirby-looking figure yelling at the... Uh, what I've deemed be the 99 percenters, the, the minions of Apocalypse, to die for dark side, you dogs. And just the look on his face and the, the eyes and the way the teeth were jutting out of him and the, the sort of angle, the Dutch angle on the character just is so reminiscent of that wonderful fourth world Kirby stuff that, you know, you can't help see the homage and just really, really enjoy it. Page seven, I remember this from my early stories of Green Lantern, but it just kind of slipped my mind. I did not know that the Manhunters actually carried around lanterns as well and used that to charge their guns, which they used as weapons. I I never really put that together, and it wasn't until I reread this that I remembered, oh yes, the lantern was actually a symbol that worked with the Manhunters before the actual Green Lantern Corps were around. So there you go. But the next chapter, obviously chapter two, was called A Twice Told Tale, and it had the same writer but different artist in Michael Lilly and Steve Mitchell. On the moon-based watchtower, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and Wally West, better known as The Flash, look over a de deactivated Manhunter robot housed in the League's armory. Kyle mentions that he's not too keen about working near a deactivated droid that wants to end all life, and Wally says that he's too worried about Green Lantern history. Cal says that there's just so much he doesn't know about the Corps, and he doesn't want to take anything for granted, being the last of the Green Lanterns. But introspection has to be put aside as John calls Kyle to the Danger Room to fight Orion. 
ringing up various increasingly larger forms of armor, Cal takes on the new god, but eventually gets his ass handed to him. After repairing the damage to the danger room, Orion mentions that Green Lanterns used to not be such panty-waste as Kyle, and offers to take him to meet with Metron to learn about a lantern who traveled to Apocalypse. Activating the boom tube, Cal and Orion are pulled through space, but end up not on New Genesis, but Apocalypse, about to be double fist slammed by Darkseid's son, Calabac. And... This is a nice little chapter of the story. It's good to see Kyle and Wally bantering here. I've always liked the relationship, and like I said, Morrison really got their relationship down, them being the two essentially legacy characters in the JLA, trying to carry on the well, carry on the legacy that their predecessors, you know, had established in the Justice League. And it, it was nice to see their friendship kind of grow in the Justice League book or the JLA book that Morrison was writing, and their friendship developed from there. So it's good stuff here. The whole I've got a legacy to carry on thing does seem like a kind of dense statement from Kyle the Wally, but maybe he's just feeling kind of selfish or single-minded. Obviously, Kyle knows that Wally's carrying on the legacy as well, so maybe he was just not thinking at the time. I like uh, uh, Lily's artwork, but... It just feels a bit generic. It's not as stylized and aping Kirby as Graham Nolan was, so not a bad chapter, but not the best one. After that, we moved to Chapter 3, which was called the, which was called Darkness Visible, and it had art by Joyce Chin and Stephen Baskerville. 945 years ago, the Guardians of the Universe wonder what's happened to their living agent, Kandatha Krek lantern that they had dispatched to the dark planet of Apocalypse. Although they still ponder the lantern's fate, the Guardians have a more pressing issues on Ismalt than worrying about the single missing Corsman. Meanwhile, on Apocalypse, Kyle and an injured Orion are running from the Parademon hordes. Ducking into an abandoned hovel, Green Lantern decides to shoot Orion's mother box into space in hopes that the JLA will recover it. At Darkseid's palace, the overlord of Apocalypse is none too pleased that Desaad and Kalabak had brought Orion and Green Lantern into his realm, but he will deal with both of them later. Back with our heroes, they're busy sneaking through the sewers to avoid detection, but as they venture further into the murky depths, they discover someone who is glad to see another member of the Corps. And for notes here... I like Joyce Chin when she was doing fill-in art over in Guy Gardner Warrior. Her art was very much of the 90s, but also highly detailed. And maybe having Steve Baskerville here as their inker, who unfortunately I don't really know all that much about, is what brings this chapter down. I also think that the smaller panels, her, with the smaller panels, her very detailed artwork doesn't get a chance to shine. Uh, when she had those big splash pages in Guy Gardner Warrior dealing with the uh, Way of the Warrior storyline, the art was phenomenal, incredibly detailed, really nice to look at. Here it just, it, it's just diminished, I think, by the smaller panels. But however, there are some really good ones here on page 28 where Darkseid is firing his Omega beams at, well, not specifically at Desaad and Calabac for bringing Green Lantern and Orion to Apocalypse instead of allowing them to travel to New Genesis. Darkseid's face looks really nice here. There's a lot of definition on his face. It, it looks like craggly granite. It's 
it's a neat look for dark side. You know, I, I don't like it when dark side face is just smooth. It's nice to see that he looks weather beaten and not like he's, I guess not like he's chiseled out of marble and it, it gives him, it gives him more depth and it gives him more rugged look here. And Joyce Chin does a good job with that. The next chapter, chapter four is entitled the underground man and has art by Grant Mayhem and Stephen Bird. Raker Garrigan is a former Green Lantern who was sent long ago by the Guardians to free Apocalypse from the tyranny of Darkseid. But after many years of hiding, he feels that his masters has a, had abandoned him. Cal informs Raker that the Guardians are gone, and that he is the last Green Lantern. And since most of the planet is on the hunt for him, discretion would be the better part of valor and all that stuff. In order to hide themselves, the trio head to Raker's sewer-bound lair, where he begins to relate his tale. Having been sent to confront the ruler of this world, Raker tells Darkseid to submit to the rule of the Guardians. The new god laughs at the lantern's arrogance and crushes his ring hand, taking the ring and sending Raker back to Oa to tell the Guardians of his desire to be left alone. Again, another interesting chapter in the book. Mayhem's art is a lot cleaner than Chin's work. It kind of has a bit of a Mike McCone feel to it. There is a scene in the book which I didn't include in the synopsis, which is Plastic Man finding the mother box that Kyle sent through space, along with, of course, a ring construct message in a bottle to uh, let Plastic Man know what's going on. It's a scene that really didn't fit into the narrative all that much, but I just wanted to put it in there so you knew that back on the Earth or back near Earth on the Watchtower, the Justice Leaguers were figuring out that Kyle and Orion didn't make it to New Genesis. After that, we come to Chapter 5, which was entitled 3000 Sin 600, and again, art was by Graham Nolan, and this time the inker was Keith Aiken. In their yellow meeting chamber, the Guardians listen to Raker recount the happenings on Apocalypse. Saying that the Guardians underestimated Darkseid, Raker says the possible solution to the problem is an increased recruitment of lanterns. The Guardians send out lanterns to recruit sentients from the 3,600 known sectors of space, all the while hedging their bets on the possibility of a lantern revolt by keeping the yellow impurity that most certainly isn't an ancient being of fear trapped inside the central battery. That's for certain. Some time has passed, and the lanterns, led by Raker, assault Apocalypse with the might of the Green Lantern core behind them. But little do they know that Darkseid is prepared for the attack as he's clad all of his armies in bright yellow armor. <sighs> yellow impurity. Mm. Now, I will admit, it kind of makes sense why the Guardians would surround themselves with all this yellow on their planet. If they truly were concerned about the Lanterns growing too powerful and revolting against them, this would play into their paranoia. Uh, again, there's a little interlude with Plastic Man warning the Flash and Shaft... Shaft? Why is Shaft on the... Oh, wait, sorry, that must be Steel. He's out of his costume. You know that Steel's one bad... Oh, I should shut my mouth. Again, the art by Nolan is really good, except there's a few panels where he's drawing Kyle to look more like 90s Superboy than Kyle. He just looks a bit too youthful. He There's a bit of a difference between Superboy, who I imagine to be about... Oh, 15 or 16, and Kyle, who I imagined being in his 
late teens, probably his early 20s, even as much as maybe 23 or 24. So, yeah. After this, we move on to Chapter 6, which was entitled Surrender. So I should probably put that Cheap Trick song in here, but I'm not going to. The art was by Aaron Lepresti and Keith Aiken, and this time it goes on New Genesis, which thankfully has nothing to do with Phil Collins, so I don't have to put any Genesis in there. The High Father Isaiah and his betrothed Avia look upon Apocalypse as the Green Lantern Corps fall to the bite of Darkseid and his yellow army. Realizing that the Lanterns are outmatched, Raker rallies his troops, armed with primitive weapons, and attempts to take on the Apocalyptic forces. While the rest of the Corps fight amongst the Parademons, Raker takes the fight to Darkseid, nearly taking him down, before the Guardians show up and put an end to the fighting. With Apocalypse so far away from the sectors of space that the Guardians control, they offer a truce with the new god, which he accepts with one caveat. Raker must remain on Apocalypse as Darkseid's prisoner. And just as Raker finishes his tale, the hunger dogs that have been tracking Kyle and Orion find their prey. Now, Aaron Lepresti does a better job here with the art than the last time I saw him back in Guy Gardner Warrior. There is more thought put into how the Lanterns are going to have to deal with enemies clothed in yellow, and I like that. A lot of times you can't just, uh, since you can't attack something that's covered in yellow, you've got to think more, well, outside of the box. So eventually they end up fighting tooth and nail, or sword versus sword against the parademon and such. So I like that they have to do that. There's another full-page splash here that's another homage to Kirby with the same sort of, you know, Dutch-angled person with the wide eyes and the gaping open mouth at the bottom of the page. But it also feels like Lepresti trying to do some 90s X-Men as well. Uh, it looks like Kalabak is coming in here and fighting up against uh, against Raker, and it looks very Wolverine, the pose, and just kind of the way he's leaping at them. So, interesting combination, the art. But rounding out the book, we've got Chapter 7, which was entitled Wolf in the Fold, and again had art by Graham Roland and Mark... Graham Nolan, sorry, and Mark Pennington. Waking up from his power nap, Orion tears into the Hunger Dogs while Kyle and Raker drill their way out of the sewer. Leaving the pursuing forces behind, our heroes drill up into an incubation chamber of baby demon thingies, I guess. Kyle attempts to contain them, but of course, this is just the time for the power on his ring to go out. But luckily, Raker has a spare, given to him by the Rock Green Lantern from the last chapter. Did I not mention that? Probably because I didn't catch it either. Raker holds the beasties off long enough for Kyle and Ryan to escape in a boom tube that plastic band, steel, or shaft, and steel's armor, and the flash opened up for them. Crisis averted, Kyle ponders how Raker could have survived all that time on Apocalypse without a battery. As we switch to a scene of Raker feeding the starving children of Apocalypse, the battery a part of Raker's head? Huh? Huh, that, you know, that was a weird ending to an otherwise good story. Luckily, the different art teams didn't ruin the book, because a lot of times when you have different art teams, especially varying different art teams with varying different styles, it tends to give the story a more just disjointed feel. There were definitely some that were better than the rest, but overall, the artwork melded together without being too distracting. Beatty wrote a really interesting tale, except for the ending, which kind of felt rushed. 
I guess the rock Green Lantern that they recruited in Chapter 4, who was only briefly mentioned in the book, embedded the lantern in Raker's head because... Geology? I don't know. It's kind of a down ending to an otherwise good story. You know, on the whole, I'd say that I enjoyed this significantly better than the first Green Lantern 80-page giant, but not quite as good as the second one. These 80-page giants were kind of a, much like the annuals, or much like the Secret Files and Origins, kind of a mixed bag. Luckily, with the second one, the uh, addition of the various different artists and various different writers to come and do the stories made it a really good story. Having one person, Scott Beatty, come on to write this one also helped, but the ending was just out there. But that doesn't mean it was completely bad. Uh, if you can find this again on the cheap, worth your read, worth your time in reading it. But that does it for this episode. Next time out on another episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern number 128, which happens to deal with Manhunters, I guess. I don't know. It's another Jay Farber story, so hopefully we're looking forward to it. We're getting close to the Judd Winnick run. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at a crossover between DC and Dark Horse Comics, called Green Lantern vs. Aliens. And, because Aliens is a horror movie, I'm going to corral some people who like to talk about horror movies to come on the show. So, over the next few episodes, as we cover the four-issue series of Green Lantern vs. Aliens, I've penned a couple of people to come on the show. Some people who've been on before, and a couple who haven't. In fact, uh, next week it's going to be someone who really has no idea about comic books that deal with Green Lantern at all. I guess it's time to get him to read a goddamn Green Lantern. Hopefully you'll be back next week to hear him and me talk about these comics. So, everyone have a good week, and we'll catch you in seven days. Bye, all. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Devonsecore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast.
The opening music for today's show was another great song from a great female artist, Pat Benatar, and her song, Fire and Ice. If you'd like to buy this song, or buy the album that it comes off of, I suggest you go to Amazon.com. It's a great place to get MP3 downloads, CDs, or even vinyl records. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is to go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Every time you hit up the homepage at 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the banner on the upper left-hand corner directing to Amazon, any purchase you make over at Amazon will shoot a little bit of money back to 2TrueFreaks. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it makes sure that 2TrueFreaks website podcast thingies get a little money to make sure that they stay on the air. Again, I should script these out much better. <laughs>